So I, I've actually been a fly casting instructor for close to 30 years, <laughs> you know, but, but what happened is I took up, I took the sport up immediately right after I saw him do that. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. And I tell the people I teach now that I was the worst. I'm not kidding you. The worst. I was all about too much risk. I was all about bringing the rod too far back. I was all about trying to throw it forward instead of what we do with the fly line, which is get it behind us first. I mean, every violation of the foundation and pillars of fly casting instruction, I violated. That was Dan Johnston talking about whether to break the wrist or to not break the wrist. This is episode number 75 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Today's episode is sponsored by the Wet Fly Swing Member Society. The Society provides exclusive discounts and access to innovative products and services from our member partner companies. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash members to check out some of the companies who are on board. Plus, you can support the podcast at one convenient location. In today's episode, I talk with Dan Johnston, who has worked for St. Croix for over 20 years and has been a casting instructor for over 30 years. Dan gets into some casting tips today, talks about where your thumb should be and the difference between rock companies that are out there. Don't miss this as Dan talks about how he went from fly casting catastrophe to master fly casting instructor. This episode is sponsored by Delifresh Design, an all-American creator of fine, sustainable fly fishing gear. Stay tuned later in the show to hear how Ross does his part with DLD to reduce waste and impacts as he builds great equipment in a sustainable fashion. You can find fresh equipment designs on Instagram at DeliFreshDesign or at DeliFreshDesign.com. So, without further ado, here's Dan Johnston from St. Croix. I was kind of blessed. I took to it uh, pretty quickly and worked with Tom Anderson for quite a few years, who was a, a sage rep. Did some classes with him uh, for a while and uh, kind of followed followed his tutelage and then started teaching on my own. And now I do uh, um, a lot a lot of the uh, fly casting instruction. Well, like for St. Croix Customer Appreciation Day, every year I'll be the fly casting instructor for that. I shoot all of our fly fishing, our fly casting videos on new product releases and things like that. So it's just been, it's been awesome to go from complete, uh, you know, come from being a complete fly casting train wreck to now being able to help people out. It's really kind of a comical story. That's cool. So yeah, so you were, yeah, so 30 years, that's definitely a nice chunk of time and you've been, and so did, did the, is that as long as you've been with St. Croix as well? You started casting instruction and then also working for St. Croix 30 years ago? No, I was actually working for a local sporting goods store in Iowa City, Iowa when I was attending college. And I got into fly fishing again. I met the gentleman that was working with me at, a, at that sporting goods store. And then been with St. Croix now for 20 years. Um, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been teaching fly, fly casting for close to 30. So it was about 10 years before I went to St. Croix, I, I started to actually instruct. Oh, gotcha. Okay, nice. So great. Well, we'll, we'll get into definitely, uh, I want to dig into some of the history of St. Croix. And, and so now before we get into all that, so you do a little bit of still gear fishing and fly fishing. Is it kind of a 50-50 split or what do you do more of these days? 
I, I do, uh, more from the fishing side of things, more conventional now, I still do a lot of fly fishing. Um, but in terms of instruction, it's all fly for me. Uh, so it's really an inter, it's an interesting dynamic because St. Croix being such a multifaceted rod manufacturer, you know, literally we have 822 cataloged items and it's really put me in a unique position to represent us because I can cross people over from conventional to fly and vice versa. And, you know, fishing to me is such a, um, I don't know, it, it, it's just such an awesome sport. There's so many different ways to do it. And fly fishing is certainly, uh, certainly one of my favorites. It, it, it just, there's so many things that we can do with a fly rod and certainly the flies that we present that just emulate exactly what those fish are eating. I swear better than anything. And that's the cool part and getting into the entomology and reading water and learning how to fish, uh, fight fish on light lines or light tippets in the fly fishing verbiage. Um, but it's it just, it's just been really neat to be able to do, to, to do both. Uh, and, wa- and watch both. Uh, yeah. Do you think with St. Croix, because I mean, there's a number of companies that do do both the conventional and the fly fishing. And I've had uh, Tom Larimer on in past episodes. He's with G. Loomis now. But um, I mean, if with St. Croix, if you took out the conventional uh, part of it, how would you still have a decent size company, or would would do you think it'd be a struggle to to make a you know if you just had to go fly fishing as far as on the business side? It, that's a really good question. And I think I would answer that in the way that if we would have started just fly, the way we take care of the angler, St. Croix is angler centric. I mean, we literally exist to, to make people better on the water. It's what we're all about. So if we would have started in fly and that's all we would do, I have every confidence that we would, be, we would be rolling with where with, with, with just simply fly, even given the fact that the market in fly, in my view, is not what it was in the uh, post river runs through yeah. days, which I'm sure you've heard yeah. a lot. I mean, that was an unbelievable boom in mm-hmm. fly and it's not that right now. So the fact that we are in conventional puts us in a tremendous position of strength to be able to help people even more. But yeah, I, I think, I think when you practice your business under the mantra of being angler centric in fishing, you 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 can make it. I, I think it depends on what your vision is, and ours has been one to allow you know to allow every angler the opportunity to be better on the water, whether it's conventional fly or you know freshwater saltwater fly fishing is certainly a a significant part of that for us. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That makes sense. Well, I've got a bunch of things I want to get into, and you know I want to talk a little bit about the rod design history and get into some casting tips and things like that. Um, I guess before we jump into it, uh, I had a couple of questions from some people out in the the Facebook group, and uh, uh, Sam wanted to know, um, you know, on glass rods, are you guys thinking about bringing in some glass, or have you started? Uh, I, I don't even, Do you have any glass in your lineup now? We do not. We use all carbon, uh, but we have uh, discussed it. You know, it's funny. I have quite a few glass rods. I, I have one all the way down to five and a half foot I use for short little spring creeks. Um, and I tell you, there's, there's certain inherent inv- advantages to glass, especially with regards to tippet protection. It's just unbelievable how that glass can, can protect tippet in terms of fighting fish and sometimes big fish on small flies. And also it loads so short, mm-hmm. you need very little back cast room behind you, but it certainly is different and, and it's not for everybody. 
Um, but it, you know, St. Croix doesn't do it right now. We, we, we've discussed it a couple times, but right now we do not have a glass offering. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's, let's just start a little bit, maybe take us back. We've talked a little bit about some of the history. I mean, people know, most people probably know there's the, you know, go through the bamboo days and all that stuff. But can you talk a little bit about like a brief history of, of uh, maybe just talk about rod design doesn't necessarily have to be fly rod design, but just a little bit of like how St. Croix, I mean, you could take back 70 years ago when the company started, but maybe if you go, you know, do we want to talk 70 years before that, or does it make sense just to start when St. Croix came into the game? Well, I think I could best represent the picture of where things at, where things are right now with regards to rod manufacturing. And I I would tie conventional and fly uh, under, under this umbrella in terms of the, t- the technological advancements in rod manufacturing, certainly since I've been with St. Croix, but even in that, you know, 10, 20 years prior to that are, are pretty remarkable. And, I, you know, like all industries, when you have competition, it, it, really, it really breeds good things for the angler because we're all trying to come up with something to give the people the advantage. And what I've seen specific, specifically to St. Croix Technological advancements with regards to the mandrel were really, really the foundation of rod manufacturing. It's the uh, um, carbon steel center ground. It looks like the the uh, car antenna. You know, I like guess one analogy I use, but you know, Saint Croix has total control over the design of that. We we actually were uh, uh, we, we use a, a a mandrel called IPC or integrated poly curve, and people can check that out on our website. But it's very, very unique to fishing rod manufacturing and certainly in fly rod uh, manufacturing. And it, it allows incredibly smooth, you know, we call it actions or deflections in conventional, but as a fly casting instructor, I've, I, I get very, very, very detailed about my loop personally to the point where I get videotaped every single year and I watch it. <laughs> and it's amazing how rod manufacturing throughout the all all the different stages of it there's actually 32 hands that touch every St. Croix rod before it gets to the angler and some of those stages certainly the mandrel um, the pressure and the roll the curing and the fibers in the oven all these things can attribute to where we are now which is to produce unbelievably smooth casting actions and and it's really neat to see that progress because uh you know 20 25 years ago some of the rods I worked with um you know, they'd say six and they'd throw a seven. And since a lot of companies yeah. started making fly lines that are a half line size heavy intentionally to get these things to load. There's still some element of that today. Uh, but I think there are purer actions now than there ever have been in fly. And that, that's a tribute to, to really all manufacturers. Yeah, that's when I, it brings up a good point. When you talk about, I mean, I was just at an expo actually today. I'm, I'm at a at the uh, the fly tying expo, and uh, you know, I just ran into a company there that I hadn't heard of, and they were they showed boats. They had their boats out on the floor, and then I looked over, and all of a sudden, there's a whole line of rods, and, and they're like, "Oh, by the way, we have a whole line of our own rods." So, I mean, it seems like everybody's got their own rod these days. Do, do you see? I mean, what's your take on the industry now? And I mean, imagine a lot of them's coming over from sea overseas and stuff. But and you also hear the the thinking of, of the, the talk that. You can't buy a bad rod. What's your take on all that? Well, I, I obviously w- would reflect a little bit of bias there because I'm 20 years in St. Croix and I know what we do. And w- with regards to vertical manufacturing, in other words, having complete control, all the design work and um, uh, 
control all the way down to the mandrel is 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 paramount in terms of creativity uh being able to react and uh put rods on the market that fit our vision way better than if we had to rely on any type of subcontracting overseas without beyond the shadow of a doubt now that being said I would say there are a lot of great fly rods on the market. Matter of fact, there's still quite a few that are made right here in the USA and, and uh, go through all the complete vertical control all the way down. And even some of the ones that come from overseas, I've casted all of these rods Dave showed up to my cat casting classes. There's not a fly rod out there that I literally not one that I haven't had in my hands because they all show up every yeah. year. Cause somebody's got one, I pick it up and <laughs> test drive it for, you know, a couple minutes. Yeah. So I, I would say they're definitely not all created equal. And I would say that uh, there are a lot of tremendous uh, viable options for the angler out there, but having total control in the manufacturing process does separate some from others. Mm-hmm. And, and do you guys have, I mean, you probably have in your lineup, some of the, you know, the less expensive rods and then not the higher end rods. What is the difference between, you know, the two? And if you, if you look at your lineup. That, and that's a great question. Usually when you look at uh, higher end rods, and I would say this about conventional too, for sure, versus rods where uh, manufacturers price points start would be uh, componentry and certainly mm-hmm. technology. For example, with regards to St. Croix, when you get into our high-end product, componentry is one thing. Everybody can do that. You know, we can put our EC recoil guides on something or, a, uh, you know, the different re, uh, reel seats and nickel silver and on and on and on. And, and there are no question those, those are more expensive than using lesser um, priced componentry. But with regards to technologies, that's, in my view, what really separates uh, fly rods in with regards to performance. And that's, what's most important to me. Um, because with, with, with St. Croix's manufacturing process, for example, we use the integrated polycurve mandrel that certainly people can check out, but we also have a, uh, um, multiple technologies in our factory that have taken decades to refine. For example, when we sand a blank, that blank can be sanded differently depending on where the sander hits along the blank. The belt has to be changed out a couple times a year. We have a master craftsman sander at St. Croix. That's just one example. Another example would be the pressure in the roll. Another example would be the cutting of the pattern. We use a computerized cutting pattern machine, which is really unbelievable in terms of consistency and accuracy. So I I would love to invite any listener out there to come up and tour our factory. We're actually doing that. We're openly inviting people to tour our factory. It's a phenomenal experience. And and what it really do? Uh, Park Falls, Wisconsin. I just left it today. Actually, I just got home a few minutes ago. I was up there giving a couple tours and training events in the last couple days. But it'll show people how these things are put together because they are not all created equal. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. That sounds like, uh, I mean, we, yeah, we could definitely talk for an hour just on that whole process. I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's, uh, we'll keep moving along here because I, I definitely wanted to get into some of the casting tips since you have a, you know, a long history there. Um, I, I did want to touch on one more. I, um, you know, was talking to, you know, like I mentioned, I've had these, these rods. I remember using those back in the day. Do you guys still do the blanks? Can you still get a blank and build a, a fly rod? Yeah, you can get them. We've actually rechanneled our blank distribution. Uh, people can uh, do a search on Rod Geeks 
And when they search that, they can get the St. Croix technology through, um, through Rod Geeks now with regards to getting a blank. And basically what happened to us, Dave, to be perfectly, perfectly honest with you is our, our, um, our demand has, uh, has challenged us so much that we are 100% focused on finished rod product right mm, now. I, I mean, we, we just, we, it, and, it, and it's a great problem to have. And I yeah. thank every single angler out there for putting us, putting us in that position. But yeah. that's how people are to get our blanks now. So they can just do a search on that. Gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. So, and this question kind of goes back to, um, you know, coming from Greg, he, he was asking about some of the older rods, the, the, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, is there a, a difference in the action of the older imperial rods, like the ones from the early 2000s compared to now? Um, and he says, I've always thought they were medium action, but I've been reading the newer ones are faster. It, is, has there been a big change since the, you know, the last 20 years with St. Croix? Greg asked a great question. Imperial is a 50-year-old uh, oh, USA-made right. series. And then and it's had multiple uh, um, reimagined uh, designs to it. And I would say, uh, generally speaking, the newest version is slightly faster, but it's certainly not, I wouldn't call it fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, and it's definitely not extra fast. There are fly rods out there that I see show up, um, uh, with people that I teach that are, are so fast that you can hardly feel until you got, you know, 30, 40 foot of line out. Mm -hmm. Imperial is a, silky smooth casting rod now if he goes back to the one that he found 30 years ago i would call that really a straight moderate and i would agree with him some of those are almost really they almost fish between carbon uh and and uh glass in terms of how slow some of those rods uh deflected which wasn't necessarily a bad thing especially for spring creek fishing when our casts are so short a stiff rod can kill us you know that mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons you know, uh, but the, but I tell you, Imperial's our number one selling fly rod and the, the newest version that we just, um, reintroduced, um, last year is just a bit, it's just been amazing. I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, yeah. I, I can't, I can't, I pinch myself whenever I cast it compared to other rods that I cast out there. We're really blessed to have it in our lineup. Yeah. I think I saw you had a video or two out there. I think I watched one of those on, on some of the rods. Cause you, do you get around? I mean, are you doing the, well, your job, you're the national sales manager. Uh, yeah, yeah, national accounts manager. Oh, accounts yeah, ma yeah. So you get around to all the shows and do the circuit, and and you're you, so people can meet you out there uh, at some of the shows. Yeah, we basically, for example, I go to the Bassmaster Classic next week, and I I have fly casting things that I do in different cities, I, and I shoot um, almost all of our fly product. Well, all of our fly product videos that people can see mm -hmm. out there. That a lot of them are on YouTube. Um, certainly on, uh, you know, Googling through St. Croix or hit my name or whatever, or like, if you hit, um, some of the like Mojo Bass Fly or things like that, it, they'll come up and you can watch those. But, you know, like, like all of us in national sales, we're, we're like water bugs, Dave. We're here one day and yeah. three States away the next. And I, right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm kind of a tough guy to catch up with for sure. But I, I would love to love to meet your yeah. listeners. That's for sure. Totally. Well, what do you, what do you love mo uh, most about the, um, traveling and doing, and doing all that relationships. Yeah. I, that's why I'm in this business without a doubt. I mean, I, I, it's been unbelievable. The people that I've met and when this, when this road ends for me, 
uh, someday. I'll look back on the relationships that I I met and that I built and the friendships that I've created have just been a true blessing. Yeah. It, 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 it trumps rod sales times a thousand to me. I did pe- the people in this sport yep. are so passionate and uh, we all share a common thread and you, know, you, you can run into a fly fisherman uh, on the water that you've never met before and start a conversation like your best friends. And it, it, it's hard to explain to people out there that don't fish uh, to really understand that. But yeah. I, I just I, that that's absolutely my biggest takeaway from that's, this. I, I hear you. I, I agree. I, I just started. Actually, I'm building a new little um, a little group. I'm putting together some of the a little component a segment of the people that listen to this show. And it's been really fun because I've been reaching out to a lot of the small and medium sized fly fishing companies and just meeting a bunch of people. And yeah, I, the show circuit I, I missed this year, but I think I'm going to hit it next year. And that's been the fun part of it, just meeting those people and, and hearing the stories. I, I did, I was curious, you know, because since you do have the experience on the gear side and the fly side, do you see a lot of difference between, you know, I mean, the, the people involved, we have talked a little bit about conservation on this, the difference between, you know, it seems like fly fishing, there's a big conservation push, but is it, are we all the same people or do you see a difference there just be, between generally speaking, the, the gear guys versus the fly guys? Well, I think gear guys or conventional could be categorized as well. You know, you there are very traditional conventional fishermen that have barbless hooks and, and wet their hands and hundred percent catch and release, just like fly. Hmm. Then you have your backwards hat, 70 mile an hour bass boat yeah. competitive type. And, and, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a matter of fact, bass fishing, competitive bass fishing has raised unbelievable funds for, oh, yeah. for preserving fisheries and stocking programs. And, you know, so there's, there's upsides to all of this. I would say, generally speaking, every category of fishermen, regardless whether it's a conventional uh, angler or a fly angler has tremendous passion and and some of them mm-hmm. practice that passion in different ways they're all really interesting to me the fly fishermen um generally speaking i would say i have, have a have a tremendous attention to detail uh we're, you know working with light lines obviously very small hooks and uh, in some situations and uh it, that's been the biggest eye opener for me is, is, uh, some of the, some of the guys that I know that, that, uh, fly tie are just, I mean, at a very, very high level are just the consummate professionals in in their sport. Yeah. They never feel like they'll completely master it. And no. it's fascinating to me to watch that. No, no, I hear you. In fact, I just, this last uh, few weeks I had a guest on and he did an amazing job describing, you know, the, breaking down the entomology piece and some, you know, information like that. He was, and, um, but I received a call or an email from somebody that, that kind of called him out and was like, you know, he's not really describing the, you know, the insects or the bugs quite the way it is. In fact, fact, it's wrong, you know? So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one of those things where, I mean, I guess you can do this your whole life and still be a fisherman but not necessarily know the entomology or be the, be the nerd, be the nerd and know, you know what I mean? Be the expert, but you can still catch tons of fish. So, I mean, it's, it's like you're saying, it's all different levels as far as you want to take it. Right. It, the, I tell you that the, uh, the, uh, number one takeaway to this whole podcast for pe- people listening out there is that, that, uh, constant pursuit to learning and all of us, every single one of us, we're learning literally every time we go to the water and kudos to, the person that presented entomology on your podcast and kudos to the one that 
called them out on a fine detail or whatever yeah. it was, because yeah. there's always, there's so much information out there. It's literally overwhelming. But mm-hmm. one thing I've noticed being a conventional fisherman and a fly fisherman is there's times I have to match that perfect with, with a certain size, um, imitation. And I could give you 50 of them in a trout example, but mm-hmm. then there's other times where you want to throw something that's the exact opposite. And believe me, and I I've talked to, um, a lot of the folks that I fly fish with and there's like, boy, they were on a, you know, whatever it is, a size yeah. 20 PMD. And if that's all you were throwing, you'd catch them. And if you threw anything else and I'd go down but behind them with, you know, three X and a big bugger and clean up behind them, you know? <laughs> so you just yep. never know. I mean, it, 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 that, that's why we have to have our blinders off. We need to, we need to remember these, these fish are opportunistic and, and sometimes the, the, the more we, the, the less we try to micro analyze things as a fisherman, sometimes we just kind of let nature take its course and let the fish tell us what to that's do. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's, uh, I think that's a great point to make. Well, let, let's get into a little bit on the fly casting because I think, you know, I've, I've talked about fly casting on this. I mean, I've definitely dug into some of the spade casting. Um, I'd like to keep this to single hand cast. I, I think that's what you've done a lot of. Um, and I just recently had, um, uh, Joe Humphreys, uh, was on the pa- uh, the podcast back in, uh, episode 73 and he, it was really interesting because he talked about breaking his wrist and how he does this certain cast that he really breaks his wrist really. And, and when I grew up teaching people, I, I've never been a certified instructor, but I've taught a lot, of, a lot of people how to cast. And I always said, keep your wrist stiff, right? You want your, you don't want to break your wrist. So it was funny when he said that because it surprised me. Can you, maybe I want to get into the whole breaking it down. If you had a beginner, you're trying to teach how to, how to cast, but starting off, what's your take on that? With regards to breaking the wrist? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually do, but yeah. I don't break it tremendously. My, my wrist will absolutely move. It is not static. And I, I think, and, and again, there are a lot of ways to teach fly casting. And I, ha- I have been next to a lot of phenomenal fly casters, uh, a lot of them. And I've seen a lot of different styles. And one thing I kind of related to the golf swing you'll see a lot of different, uh, uh, setups. Certainly you'll see, you'll see some different forms and different cadences and back, you know, back cast speeds and so forth. But there's a couple of moment of impacts that are very consistent and, and it's the same thing in golf. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is we, we always need to stay connected to the fly line for sure. Um, and the back cast, I, I, I find beyond critical, and the back cast is set up by obviously stopping the rod at the right position with regards to the angle in which it's pointing. But secondly, we have to accelerate to that abrupt stop to create that line to follow the travel of the tip. And it's critical because the one thing we start talking about in the beginning of a fly casting class is the importance of, you know, obviously we get into a um, hand position and we lay the line. I have actually little black marks on my lines by the tips where everybody goes out to that black mark. So we make sure we have a very castable, teachable, consistent amount of line out right. amongst the, how much amongst line, the class. How much, how much line do you recommend? You know, it, 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 it's right around 19 to 20 feet, uh, yeah. depending on the fly line. But, I, I use a yeah. lot of SA lines to be honest with you. And that's mm-hmm. just, it just is what it is. I've, I've let it out so much and marked them. That's, that's, that's pretty close to where it's at. But, um, when we start talking about 
the nuts and bolts of fly casting, the first thing I see people do, and I think a lot of instructors out there listening to this would agree with me, is people tense up. They overgrip the rod. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you take your hand pressure because mm-hmm. of nervousness, it's, it's like shooting a free throw with one second to go to win the game. Right. Every muscle in your body tightens up, and <laughs> that's what creates that stiffness, and you lose your fluidity. So we really teach to relax the hand, relax the muscles. And we talk about a couple certain important moments uh, that are very critical in the fly cast. One of them is certainly, certainly the end of that back cast, that flick stop where you come up and you hit that stop. It has to be relaxed, but it definitely has to be accentuated. You really let the rod cast itself. And, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch people um, get that. Uh, in a in a in a in a very short period of time is ten to two. Is that still something you know something that somebody's brand new when you tell me? Because finding that place to stop is is kind of a struggle, right? To starting off. I think the way I teach it, Dave, is not necessarily ten to two. But I, what I will tell them is stop with your thumb pointing up. Think mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Those those of you guys listening out there, yep. if you put your elbow into your body and you pull your hand up with your thumb pointing up, you'll notice the fly rod is slightly pointing back. Mm-hmm. You can call it 10, 10, 30, 10, 15, whatever. The last thing I would do is want people thinking about a time right. because if they think about now, now again, this is me talking, but if you think about a time, 99% of people are going to come back farther than that time. That's right. I guarantee it. I've seen it a thousand times. So what I tell them is to stop with your thumb pointing up. And that rod's going to be slightly pointed back, whether they like it or not, but it won't be too far back. And, and that, and it with a very relaxed hand, and that is a very easily repeatable, teachable mantra that I've actually very rarely heard taught. Mm-hmm. But it, it's worked really well instead of giving people 10 to 2, because the more we empiricalize things, the more we put numbers on things, the stiffer people get. Yeah. They turn into robots, yeah. at least at least from what I've seen. No, that's a good point. Yeah, and when you do it, that makes sense. Yeah, stop stopping up high. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, as far as questions and tips, I mean, is there a common when you see people, maybe they're a beginner, they've been casting a while, but a common common struggle or thing that you see a lot of questions that people have when they first get going? Well, I, I think every instructor on the planet would say people bring the rod too far back. No yeah. question about it. And another thing, another, another thing most people do is they have the, the, the uh, conceptualization or the, vi- the visualization that they're trying to throw something in front of them. Matter of fact, one of the first mm-hmm. things I do in my class, I'll pick up a rock and I'll say, this is what we're trained to do. If we're trying to throw something out there, and I'll throw it. And I'll say, now, if we we're going to throw this in a fly casting motion, it's completely counterintuitive because we have to throw it behind us first. That's not the way we throw a baseball when we grow up as a kid. We don't come back and stop behind us when we throw a baseball. It's like it comes back in one motion, and we everything. Our whole focus is forward, 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 and that's the kiss of death in fly casting, because people need to understand that line speed has to be created behind you first. That's what loads that rod. The forward push with the thumb allows that rod to unload, and if you don't get the speed up behind you, with by throwing a good back cast. The fly cast is killed. And what one, one thing I mention to students all the time, I can tell from 50 feet away when I'm watching a line of people, when the rods go back, which cast is going to be good and which ones aren't before they go forward. 
every single time because mm-hmm. you can tell by how that that line is starting to load behind them slightly ascending because they've stopped that tip at the right spot and i would also add a lot of people accelerate too quickly off the water the fly cast should be very slow in the initial stage mm-hmm. it should accelerate slowly and smoothly throughout the stroke with an accentuated stop at the end And people talk about the tailing loop and all these things going forward. A lot of times what I see is it's the same thing in reverse order. People speed up that cast too quick. They get punchy. And that's what forms that line speed to become inconsistent. You see the loop tail. It's the same thing uh, going behind you, too. You can't speed up too fast. Don't rip it off the water. Matter of fact, a lot of times you'll hear me say slow, slow, Mm -hmm. slow, slow, flick stop. to get people to get that line moving first, get the line moving first before you pick it up. Those are some things that Dave, to be honest with you, are, you know, teaching with other people and, you know, 30 years of seeing all the mistakes I certainly made and, and uh, others as well. Yeah. Well, and I I was thinking as you come with the forward cast, I think it was um, Lefty Cray that said, imagine you have a paintbrush in your hand with paint on it and you want to basically throw the paint at the wall without dripping it and you kind of you know how you, you would do that with a paintbrush and you just kind of you slow 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 and then flick it is, is that the forward cast is that i'm not sure if i'm getting that right <laughs> that analogy well what lefty used to say that the forward cast stops so abruptly your eyes roll in the back of your head and i'd be honest with you i've cast it right next to him before and, yeah uh you know what well, he, he was unbelievable i yeah, absolutely was good, what, what, uh, what made him what, what was his you know, as far as the casting, why, why was he such a, a good caster for those that have never seen him? I, I honestly think I can answer that. He was a very, very powerful guy. He had very strong hands and forearms, but he had incredible finesse. And that's a, that's a lethal combination for a fly caster. He was able to relax and be very fluid, but at the same time, he was a very powerful guy. But what Lefty Cray did, I would argue as well as anybody, maybe ever, is those accentuated stops in his fly cast with regards to the back cast and the forward cast. And those mm. come at the end yep. of each stroke, yep. not the beginning. And I, I remember watching him out in uh, Denver years and years ago, casting, we were both up on the fly casting lane out there. And I just sat there and watched him for a while. And he absolutely had the most accentuated stop on the end of his forward cast where it, it, he just literally looked like he was frozen in time. And that line did whatever his tip did period there was it's almost like there was no negotiation for that fly line to do anything different than than what he wanted to do he had tremendous command over the tip of the fly rod this episode is sponsored by deli fresh design a company that makes sustainable fly fishing gear in the heart of denver colorado Deli Fresh blends old waders and recycled sailcloth with Cordura canvas to make rugged, river-tested gear such as fly wallets, slings, pet sling packs, and my favorite, beer koozies. I had a great chat with Ross at Deli Fresh and was blown away by his dedication to fly fishing and conservation. Here's a short clip of how Ross reduces waste with his personal actions and as a responsible company. But as a company, I'm trying to reduce my impact uh, by riding a bike or taking uh, the bus or shared uh, shared cars, stuff like that, on uh, for commuting. And then, you know, yeah, when I go fishing, I, I'll get in a car, but I, I try to go with other people. And, and so I think there's things that as consumers that we can do on a daily basis. My own mentality of doing those things on a daily basis, like driving or riding a bike, 
uh, and then trying to see what uh, what materials I can use that reduce waste or what I'm trying to do as a person and as a company. Pretty good stuff, right? Let's support a great company doing business the right way. All of DFD's gear will help you spend more time casting and less time juggling your stuff. To see these products, go follow them on Instagram where you can see their latest designs. Find out more, visit delifreshdesign.com. Well, you mentioned the, the tailing loop. And so so I think what you mentioned is one way to avoid the tailing loop is just be consistent on your speed. Is that the biggest thing or is there something else we missed if somebody has a tailing loop that where the fly, and maybe you can explain it, that's where the fly is kind of tailing and sometimes even gets tangled around the line. Is that correct? Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, the tailing loop is the is in my view one of the most difficult things to correct because a lot of times it happens with people that have been fly casting for a long, long, long time. It does. I, I and they've do. got a tailing I, I, loop. I, I, <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. So here's here's what I recommend to correct the tailing loop. Number one, and, and let's talk about a tailing loop with regards to the forward cast. You've already set up your back cast. Let's assume everything's good in the back cast, mm-hmm. but you're tailing it going forward. Which is when it, which is when it happens. That, that's when the tailing loop, you'll see it go out. You'll see the line almost looks like it ducks up and underneath out there. You can see it if you do it. Certainly from the side, you can see it. There's a couple things that we teach on, on the tailing loop. Number one is make sure when you start the back cast, don't get punchy. In other words, don't punch that thing in the beginning of the back cast. What that does when you do that is it speeds up part of the line and the other part has to play catch up and the, the line that is out there behind you throughout the length of that line in the loop. If you can imagine, you've got a, you've got a bunch of line behind you in a back cast and you start to come forward. That line's pretty straight behind you, slightly curled on the top. If you punch that, it has to make that circle really quick and it comes around and you have inconsistent speeds within that line. And another thing that we do to, to alleviate that, and you, this is a little harder, but you got to visualize it. And it's one way you can take it away, but it's not necessarily something we want to go with. Eventually, we'll want to tailor it back. So follow me on this. You get the line behind you on a back cast and everything's set up fine. Take your thumb on the way forward and really take it over the top of the cast. In other words, don't let the bottom of your wrist dominate the fly cast coming forward. Take your thumb and try to push it over the top of the cast. And it's almost impossible to tail a loop if you do that. And the, and the reason why it does that is as you start to come over, and, and again, this is a very accentuated motion to get rid of a tailing loop. We don't want to cast that way all the time, but it's one way. It, it's, for example, it's like if you're slicing the ball, aim way left. It's one way, you know, yeah. it, it, it's right. one way to get past, it, it gets past the visualization of a, of, of, of a tail, but what it does is it, it creates more consistent speed in the forward cast because your thumb takes control of the butt section of that rod. And it's not like that real quick acceleration a pitcher would make in baseball. That's a killer in fly casting. When you speed up too fast in the beginning of the back cast, it should be a smooth, yeah. accelerated uh, speed with the stop at the end, a good mm. forward cast. So it, I, I wish we could almost attach video to this because yeah, it's I can. very difficult to explain that. I can all, all um, in the show notes of this, this episode will be at, um, wetflyswing.com slash 74. And I'll, I'll try to find a couple videos that, um, you know, that, that can kind of talk, show what we're talking about here. 
Do you have anything? Excellent. Do you have anything out there that that describes this on your videos? No, but you can see. I don't have a video that describes it verbally. But if there was a video up there, you could ha- you could attach the verbiage, and folks could understand. Because what you'll see if you watch a very efficient flycaster is you'll watch the line set up behind them. And as they come forward, it's a very smooth move forward. The accentuated stop is at the end of that forward cast. It's not a, uh, a punchy push at the beginning. That's what causes all kinds of problems. It's a, the, the, the speed transition in the fly cast should build both ways. It starts smooth and graduates going back. And it starts smooth and graduates going forward. That's the best way I can mm-hmm. explain it. And if you watch a video from the side, you'll really see it. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, those are great, great points. Um, I did hear, I think it was another show you're on and you're talking about uh, pike and musky rods and, and things like that. Is, is that something you've done a lot of fish, uh, fishing for? And I'm not sure what, what is your home river? If you had to say your home waters that you fish. Well, boy, you name it now, being being yeah. more national. But uh, I was just down in Mexico last week, <laughs> uh, filming filming videos for the upcoming mm-hmm. Bassmaster Classic. Oh, but, yeah. um, you know, I live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, but yeah, I did do a podcast a while ago on pike and muskie, and that you boy, you talk about a fly fishing target. I mean, I'm telling yeah. you, that's just uh, an absolute riot. And there's there's people out there doing a really good job marketing it, and you, yep. you're starting to see some rods tailored for it now for sure. And, and uh, right. it, it's a, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's really getting fun to see the, the creativity of fly fishing reach beyond trout is really exciting. It is to cool. Us. It is cool. Yeah. I've been, I'm actually just starting in, in the destination season that we're, we're in right now. And yeah, I mean, I'm trying to cover as much as I can and there's all sorts of species from, you know, African tiger fish to, you know, pike and muskie. I mean, we, there's just a bunch of destination spots. So I'm hoping to get around and get people on that can cover it as I go. Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking maybe we can bring it back uh, just quickly back to the St. Croix history. I had uh, Tom Rosenbauer on and he brought us back to Orvis back in 1856 when they, you know, they started back and and uh, St. Croix isn't quite as old, but it's probably one of the older companies we have out there. Can you, again, just talk about how, you know, where, where, that, where that started, um, how St. Croix got into it? And when it, when it got into it, did it have fly fishing from, from the beginning? We originally built conventional uh, split bamboo uh, 71 years ago um, in, a, in actually Unity, Wisconsin. Uh, the, the factory now is in Park Falls, Wisconsin. The current owners, it's a family-owned company, and the, the current owner's father came to uh, Park Falls in 1977 to turn around what, really, to be honest with you, was a, a, a struggling company. To see where we are now compared to them is a, is a true testament to the core values and beliefs of the owners of St. Croix, to be, to be quite frank. And, you know, we, we, we uh, uh, became in my view, uh, strong and fly really probably starting in the eighties, early nineties for sure. And then there was a giant quantum leap, um, because people started to figure out the value of, of the verticality of manufacturing or having control over the complete manufacturing process. And I remember one of the rods that, uh, you know, Imperial was, you know, like I said, it's a, uh, you know, a 50 year old series and it's a, it's a tried and true series for diehard fly anglers really globally. Uh, one rod with regards to a performance rod with a little more speed. I remember I was doing 
fly casting classes, um, as I mentioned earlier, for a different company at that time, um, at least helping a guy that, that worked uh, for a different company. And uh, I remember seeing the St. Croix Legend Ultra for the first time. And I remember casting that rod and I couldn't believe it, how smooth that was. Absolutely could not believe it. And it just took off like a rocket ship for there. Now we're working. Matter of fact, just yesterday I was casting a new design. I can't talk about it yet, but I do a lot of the finished test casting on the fly side for St. Croix. And I was in a gymnasium yesterday casting a rod that we're going to launch uh, next year that just, it, it absolutely blows my mind. I had the engineers with us a month ago. And I casted uh, two versions of it. We had the, the two most popular fly lines out there with us to do it. And we were obviously inside. They got 50 inches of snow up there. But I, I noticed a couple of the versions were a little soft in a certain section of the rod, specifically at 40, 45 feet of line out. I could really tell there was a soft spot. Our engineers literally in one week through 3D printing on the handle and blank deflection manipulation in one week called me and they go, we got another prototype. Next time you're up here, we're going to try it again. I'm not kidding you, Dave. I can't wait for people to get their hands on it. I <laughs> cast them yesterday. I threw one of them two times and I started laughing. I handed it to our engineer and I said, this ball is still flying. Absolutely nailed it. And that's the example of having control. Yeah. Um, the, the fact we can communicate with our engineers directly right here in Park Falls, Wisconsin is a, is a, really, really neat thing to be able to give the, the, the angry the advantage. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, definitely that is, I mean, I don't understand everything that's behind rods, but I mean, I can just start naming off, you know, rods, you know, about Scott Orvis, uh, G Loomis, uh, Sage, right? I mean, there's uh, so many rods out there and they would probably all say, you know, likely a similar story about, the, the process and, and how great they are. I mean, what do you think when you look at it? I mean, obviously you're going to, you know, say St. Croix is, is the best rod and I know, I know it's a great rod, but I'm just curious, like when somebody's out there trying to pick a new rod, how do they know whether to buy a G Loomis or a St. Croix or, you know, or do you, do you think it really matters? Well, first of all, I would say I have the utmost respect for every brand you mentioned, and I could mention five, six more. I mean, these are great companies and real, really uh, pillars in our industry. I'd throw, you know, a few more in that, in that list as well. But with regards to brands, um, these rods do cast a little different. And it's funny how, how certain companies have their, have their, uh, have their own feel. I can definitely say that about Scott, some of their trout rods, you know, um, and, and, you know, certainly a, a lot of the Sage rods, as I mentioned, I, I did casting classes with a guy that worked for Sage for eight or nine years uh, in Wisconsin. He was from Wisconsin. I used to do him in Iowa. And then I've casted, uh, um, uh, a lot of the Orvis product, all these rods show up to my casting classes and fascinates me that they do have slightly different feels. There's no question, but, but, but I, I am just very complimentary of, about uh, every single brand that you mentioned. And I don't really try to steer people away from anything. I kind of tell them our brand story. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, well, yeah. And I think a lot of people attach to, what you stand for and what your values and beliefs are as a company as much or more than right. what you actually make, yep. you know, and, sure. and, and all these companies you mentioned and, and I, I, you know, huge kudos to the whole fly fishing industry because we all have a story to tell and all are great stories and anglers attached to certain brands for certain yeah. reasons. But every single brand you mentioned is just, is, is awesome. And I would throw us, throw us right in there for sure. Well, and yeah, I mean, I think that's the, and, 
you know, I think I agree. I think all those companies I mentioned are, are all big, you know, as far as in the fly fishing space are all some of the biggest companies. It is interesting because I'm reaching out to some of the smaller, um, like I mentioned, smaller to mid-sized companies. And one of them um, that, that I think is going to be part of, um, you know, maybe this little, this group we're putting together here is Moonshine uh, moonshine Rods. And and I'm not sure about the entire history of this this company, but they're basically, you know, a small company getting started early on, you know, have a good, you know, product, it sounds like building a cool, um, you know, community, you know, and that's just one company out there. And, and, and again, you know, who's, who's to say who you choose, right? I mean, maybe this company has a great rod. They obviously probably don't have the money behind all the R and D you guys are able to do, but it's just, it, it just kind of, it's an interesting thing. Cause I think that, um, you know, especially for, you know, somebody new, I think you just grab a rod and get going, but somebody that, that's maybe looking to step up to a, the next rod, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard choice sometimes, but I appreciate your, uh, your feedback here on just the St. Croix process, because it, it is interesting to, to understand what makes a good rod. Well, and, and, and again, you know, it's funny cause I have people show up to, um, I, I did a, a casting class for the American substance abuse uh, last year here and locally for uh, a couple different reasons, but a lot of people show up to support that. And I had every, a lot of different brands of fly rods and a lot, everybody from around here knows who I work for. And they'd mm-hmm. walk in kind of sheepishly and kind of hide <laughs> the brand of their rod. And it's so, it's so funny because as I start casting and we start talking, we get into the, uh, the nuances of the sport and the, the yeah. passion for the sport and the rod brand. And ter- you know, for me, the driving force for me to do what I do is to pass along passion and hopefully help people be better on the water, regardless mm-hmm. what rod they're using. Yeah. I'm being perfectly honest with you. Yeah. I think the more people we get into the sport and help them become successful, we all win. And that includes our fisheries. So right. I, I, I just think it's a, we're, we're all in this together and it's a, you know, St. Croix has its story for sure. And I tell it proudly and we, we have a unbelievable loyal customer base and I appreciate every one of them. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in the same breath, I would say when I teach fly casting, I have a much more broad look at getting people into the sport, whether it's a gateway price rod or whether it's the guy or gal that's been casting for 60 years and hung up with a little fine tailing loop. I mean, we work mm-hmm. with all of them and that's the fun of it for me. It yeah. is just, uh, you know, continuing to try to help people be better and learn myself along the way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, and I think the, the podcasting space is the same the way I feel about it. I, I don't think it matters. You know, I, I want to see more fly fishing podcasts coming into it because I think the more, you know, the better, I think that's just, that's just good stuff. So, okay, well let's, um, you know, we got a little bit of time here. I, I had a few more questions I wanted to jump through. I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the his, history piece there on um, St. Croix. But, you know, looking at your story, you know, and I think you mentioned we talked a little bit about when you got going. I guess you've been an instructor for quite a while. Can you take us back to that moment when you knew you were all in on the fly fish or well, just on fishing in general? Because, I mean, making a career out of fishing doesn't seem like it's the easiest thing to do. Can you take us back to that moment when you knew this was your thing? Oh, I could go way back. I, I'm not kidding you. I mean, like fourth grade. No, no I was kidding. on a field trip. Oh, absolutely. I was on a field trip and I was walking along a boat dock and there's kids running all over the place. And I saw a bluegill under that dock and the little cracks in the dock. And come, uh, no matter, at all costs, I wasn't going to catch that thing. And I found a piece of line on the bank with a gold hook with a dried up nightcrawler on it. I picked that nightcrawler off my fingernail, laid on that dock to the point where the teachers were yelling at me. And I finally got that thing to bite. 
And I got it up to the crack in the dock and it got off because I couldn't get it through the crack <laughs> yeah. of the dock. And from that day forward, God put me on this earth to, yeah. to fish and to help people in, in this industry. And there was absolutely no doubt. I, I used to run home from the school bus every single day throw a MEPS number three around a pond and catch two 10 inch bass and go home and think I was the best bass fisherman in the world. And when I got into fly fishing, it's just, it's been literally a true blessing. You know, let's take Jen for an example. Yeah. The only reason she and I are, you know, she's Jen's one of my best friends mm-hmm. and we've shot a couple of videos, fly fishing videos together that are just, that I'll never forget. And I, there's no way I would have ever met her if it wasn't for fly fishing. And that's a classic example. So I've been all in for, a long, long time. And I think yep. that, uh, what I would, I would ask people to do is open up your, uh, your views of different types of fishing. I did an article years ago on cat fishing, uh, with a fly rod. I was using a woolly bugger, just smoking them on a reservoir when they were up on the rocks in the <laughs> spring. And we've done, you know, fly fished for, you know, musky tarpon, bonefish, trout, smallmouth, large, Bob, I'm shooting a TV show this spring on smallmouth up in Wisconsin, fly fishing and, bass and uh, i mean it's just if you take your blinders off it is a phenomenal phenomenal sport let's not get hung up on trout no no yeah there's all sorts of species you can you can go for um so well i i get a a few more questions before we get into a little bit of a rapid fire round one of them um you know just as far as a resource do you, do you think for when you talk about fly casting if you'd recommend i mean you mentioned you have some videos are there any other resources books magazines videos anything you would recommend for somebody who wants to maybe become a better caster that, that maybe can't get into pay for a you know a instructor right now yeah there's there's uh some videos to be honest with you that are old old mm-hmm. old that are still very fundamental and very sound your basic fly casting i know there sa had one i know uh there's some uh old old lee wolf joan wolf things out there that mm-hmm. are that are still very very sound and fundamental and i could go on and on not yeah. with these names of these folks that have done things like this so you know it, again if you look at you're going to hear the more you get around and uh, work with different instructors. A lot of us have our own different slight nuances with regard to the way we teach, but the basics, the fundamentals, certainly in the back cast and the forward cast really are universal to mm-hmm. a large degree. And I, I would say that, uh, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money and go to a super, super expensive event or something like that. It's, the big thing would be to, you know, stay relaxed and try to be detailed and try to understand what that video or book is trying to explain to you. And the biggest thing that I would uh, try to put in people's minds before they learn to fly cast, especially if they're on the beginning side, is let's remember the fly line is a carrying vehicle for the fly. That's a, that's a diametric opposite to conventional where the lure weight pulls mm. the line out mm. of the reel. It's opposite. Right. And we need to get, we need to program our mind that we need to get the speed of the fly line up and that pulls the leader and the fly. So it's a completely opposite mindset. And I, and it's one thing we really talk about in the front side of our classes because people go, Oh, you know, really starts to make sense. Cause if you think about that, you stop thinking about trying to throw everything in front of you. You all, you automatically start thinking something has to pull something. That is a whole nother, uh, right. Psychological way to look at it. It's very, very helpful for people just starting out. Okay. Okay. And, um, and, and do you have, this is, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have a, have to be a, uh, 
piece of fly fishing gear, but just a top piece of gear you use, whether that's traveling around or out fishing that uh, you kind of don't leave home without? Oh, man, you, that's a tough question. You're giving <laughs> me about 50. Of what? I, okay, I'll tell you this. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this on the conventional side, yeah. too. I won't even let people in my boat without polarized sunglasses. Oh, okay. And there's two, re- there's two reasons why I say that. Number one, I got a, I had a uh, Griffith gnat in the back of my ear once yep. from a, a person I was guiding. And I also got, I've been hit, I've been leader whipped about three or four times. Uh, and, oh, yeah. and granted, I've been teaching for a long time, but glasses from, in terms of eye protection, where fly fishing is very, very, very important. Everybody listening out there, everybody that's listening, that's done a lot of fly fishing has had that one instance where you're coming back and you're trying to steeple it back behind you and, and you get the wrong crosswind and that leader in line blows across your face. Everybody has had that happen. And it only takes once. And, oh, and yeah. so I would say the, be- the best uh, um, piece of advice I could give out there is wear your glasses. Don't mess around. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. Gotcha. And do you have a, a brand or a type of glass you know, company that you like to use? Well, there's a lot of them out yeah. there. I, I personally wear Wiley X. I, I shoot all my videos with Wiley X and they're, uh, okay. you know, they're a, a military grade. Um, you know, I wear them just as much for protection as I do for vision under the water. But sure. I, you know, to be honest with you, I mean, Costa Del Mar, unbelievable yeah. stuff. I, and I could go on and on with oh, glass yeah. brands. The, the main thing is wear something. Wear I, something I'm yeah. pretty vehement. Absolutely. If I'm fishing around people or certainly people in my boat or whenever I, I did spring Creek guiding in Northeast Iowa for quite a few years and it, it was, it was non-negotiable. Hmm. You just have to wear your glasses, you nice. know, um, we read short casts and little flies and these things are, you know, laser sharp and you just, you just gotta, gotta use your head on that for sure. Nice. Okay. Well, let's, let's jump into this rapid fire round. This is just a quick little round. I got some questions we can answer some random, some not so random, and we'll just jump through it as we wrap things up here. Um, so looking at, you know, obviously since you were four years old, fly fishing or not fly fishing, but just fishing in general, you've been into it, but you know, if it wasn't fly fishing, uh, you know, if, or if fishing wasn't your career, what do you think you would have done? It would have been something outside. Beyond the shadow of yeah. a doubt, I, you put you put me in an office and box me in. I go stir crazy, man. Yeah. I, I got to the outside. Yeah. So it could have been possibly with the, with the DNR or or mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know who knows. But I, I absolutely have to be outside. And and I would also say that about water. I have to be yeah. around water for whatever reason. I don't <laughs> know. I I live close to two lakes now, and I, I just can't be away from water very long, or I almost get like in a withdrawal. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. No, I'm the same way. And, and so you manage, I mean, I guess you probably have some uh, office work you have to do, but are you able to do kind of a, a 50-50 thing or how much do you get in the office versus getting out outdoors? Well, I'm very fortunate because when I travel in the industry that I'm in, we're, we're either testing something or we're, you know, we, we get to go fishing. Uh, our office is in northern Wisconsin, which is just covered up with lakes. So work and fishing go side to side, hand to hand with what I do. And mm-hmm. do I get stuck in the office? Absolutely. And more, more, more than I would wish to be, but we, we get, we get to get out quite a bit. And I think you have to, I, I think the only way you can really uh, give people an advantage of, on the water is if you practice it yourself and you strive to learn every single day. And that's one thing I've always tried to do, Dave, is just it, get better every single day and everything that I do. And I, I'm always listening and trying to learn from, other people just insatiably. Yeah. Have you, some of those other people, do you have a few, 
mentors or anybody you want to note here that's helped you get to you know where you are today? You know, nobody would know this guy, but back in the uh, when I was in college, it was a John Husingfeld. Nobody will ever hear of him. I, I actually I saw him up at our factory up in Wisconsin about two years ago, and. I, he came in and uh, I was actually teaching fly casting out in the yard. And uh, he was the guy that I saw do that in my boat and, and actually, you know, uh, bring up all those bass that day. And, and, and sometimes it's things like that that have moved me more than watching a lefty cray or, you know, uh, I've worked with Bruce Richards personally mm-hmm. casting St. Croix testing rods side by side. He and did, he and I did it up in a gymnasium and that obviously mm-hmm. moments like that throughout my career are awesome. But that one moment, that one moment with that guy way back in my boat, that left-handed guy that nobody's heard of is the one that really moved me more than anything else. Cool. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. I've, I've had a few influences along the way as well. And some of them I hope to get on the show and some, some people would never have heard of, heard of these people, but yeah, yeah. it's pretty amazing. Those people that, uh, the, the young, the unsung heroes, right? Those are the, those are the ones. Absolutely. So, uh, okay. And, um, so as far as music, this is kind of out there, but I've been loving to, you know, check in with people. If you have a favorite, you know, either a band or a type of music that you listen to. Well, my favorite, my favorite player is my brother. And I tell you, for those people out there listening, I just shot a fly fishing video for Imperial, uh, last fall. I shot a video in Wisconsin on that rod. And, uh, I didn't know that was true. Imperial was two years ago with Jen Ripple. Mm. Uh, uh-huh. but last year I shot Mojo Trout, St. Croix Mojo Trout. And the background music that you guys are going to hear is my brother on acoustic guitar. No kidding. And I, I, it was so awesome because he sent me this link a while back and he's like, dude, listen to this. He's a phenomenal guitar player down uh-huh. in St. Louis. And, um, you can, you can Google him on like Steve Johnston blues and what, okay. whatever. It's sure, cool. fun to listen to him. But in any case, he sends me this link and it hit me. I immediately picked up the phone called the guy, one of, one of the camera guys that shoots me a lot. And I said, you've got to listen to this. I said, if this isn't a fly video, I don't know what is. And nobody's got anything like it because uh-huh. it's my brother. You yeah. know, he did it in a, in a studio. That's so you guys are going to see that. It, it, it'll be hitting our website and hitting Facebook pretty soon here. Okay. It's a, it, the, the background acoustic music in that fly video is my brother, Steve. So that's who I'm going to call out. Good deal. Good deal. All right. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll get a link out to that again at wetflyswing.com slash, uh, seven, four. Um, when, when that comes out, I'll make sure to have a link in the show notes and uh, maybe get a video there if, if there is one. Um, what about, um, you know, if you get off the river or lake or whatever, do you have a favorite beverage you like to, you know, at the end of the day or after you get off? Line and Kugel's Honey Vice, man. Really? I'm from, I'm from Wisconsin. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I toured the, uh, factory in Chippewa Falls, uh, or the, the, the brewery, uh, uh, last year. And, uh-huh. and, you know, I, I just, I just think that they make a lot of really smooth tasting beers. Um, uh, I love to have a beer when I get off mm-hmm. the water and just kind of relax. And, you know, sometimes you learn more about fishing at least I do yep. at the end of the day, when I sit back and I reflect on what I've done and I can sit there and watch things happen on that stream yeah. when I'm not sit, sitting there attacking it is when I learn the most right. uh, it, without a doubt. And I'm thinking back, boy, maybe I should have tried this or tried that. And yeah. a lot of times that's with a nice cold lining. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to find that one as well. Um, how about, this is an interesting one I've been checking in with people and there's been some interesting replies but on sports did you were you ever you know back when you were a kid or whatever did you ever get into any sports specifically 
other than fishing? Yeah, I, I played some basketball. I played golf actually competitively in high school and junior college. And mm. that's why a lot of people hear me use a lot of golf analogies oh, uh, yeah. because there's a lot of, a lot of similarities. I mean, there's a thousand ways if you watch professional golfers, how they take that club back, but where they set it up. And at the moment, when I talk about that moment of impact, you talk about lefty flicking the paint mm-hmm. off the brush, professional golfers are the same way at the moment of impact. You mm-hmm. watch the way their wrist is, the way their eye is, the way their hands are. There's a tremendous similarity between great players for years and years and years. They all do the same thing right at the ball. And if you watch really efficient fly casters, that moment of impact, Mm -hmm. especially at the end of the back cast, has frighteningly similar uh, similarities all sure. across all walks of life. And that that's where, that's where uh, sports attached fly fishing to me for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking, um, and you know, obviously there's some big names in, in uh, golf. Um, and I actually, I've played a little bit of golf. I was never a great golfer, but ha- had a time where I, I went into it, but who, who's the, who's the best right now? Is there like somebody like the old, you know, I mean, Tiger Woods back in the day was, was, was the best, but, is there somebody out there? Do you still follow it? I do a little bit. There's so many of them. I tell you, uh, and this is true in fishing too. It's these young guns that are so impressive. Mm. It's these 20 somethings that, that are, that are really oh, no, starting okay. to take over. And yeah, it, it's really fun to watch. And matter of fact, like I mentioned, I'll be going to Knoxville, Tennessee next week to the Bassmaster Classic. And a lot of these guys are, um, some of them in the, you know, uh, around that sport, are are so good at such an early age. And I, I attribute, I did a podcast on this a while back. I, I attribute some of that to the, the uh, abundance of, of information at our fingertips anymore. I mean, we can literally do a search and learn at least I'm not talking about cutting our teeth on the water, physically learning it, but in terms of the conceptualization of an idea or a strategy or equipment or anything, a thousand times faster than me being 51 the way I had to do it when I was 20. Hmm. Uh, There's so much information at our fingertips online and YouTube and it's really helped people get better faster for sure. Um, You know, certainly in all, in all, all sorts of fishing. Yeah. In the, the bass master class. I mean, that is really interesting that that subjects come up a few times on this show. I, I've talked to, you know, everybody from, um, um, Kelly Gallup, who, who we had a great discussion on that one. He talked about how a lot of the stuff he inv- you know invented or created in fly fishing came from the bass guys. Some of the stuff they did. Can you take us, you know, maybe tell us more about what that Bassmaster Classic? If you've never been to one, what it feels like when you go there? Because I think the picture I have, and probably a lot of people have, are a bunch of like NASCAR <laughs> looking guys and, and those jacked up. Uh, thing on steroids, the fishermen in these fast boats, but can you take us to your perspective on it? It's the, it is the Super Bowl of bass fishing. There is certainly an element of that. Um, but there's also an, uh, and, and this, this was the, the main point that I made on a recent podcast about this topic was there's a moment, especially towards Sunday, towards the last day where there are thousands of people that have never met one another that are sharing a common thread and focused on the finality of this tournament. And we're all this big cohesive network of anglers that are, that you could, you could talk to any one of them and act like you've known them for 20 years. And, you know, all fishermen out there and you know, it's funny. I working for St. Croix, I work with all different types of 
fishing uh, means and ways, and you know, freshwater, saltwater, right. fly, spay, every you know, everything. But what I will say, there are certain stereotypes that get thrown out yeah. about certain types of fishing. But the way I see it is, although we we have different ways of doing it, certainly different ways of expressing our passions. There is a love for the sport, a love for the fishery, a love for the challenge of trying to trick mother nature that is shared amongst all of us. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it time and time and time again, whether the guy's got a, we call them scare jerseys in bass fishing or whether the guys, the river runs through it, pipe smoking, you know, a a guy or gal, you know, there, there is that passion for fishing it is universal. That's yeah. what I love about this industry more than anything else. Yeah, that's cool. It's pretty awesome that you're able to straddle the line between the two because, yeah, a lot of people never never even try. Well, I think a lot of people probably start out with a fishing spin rods just because that's a good way to get started, but, you know, never go back. Well, here's, to, something, yeah. here's something I will say. We're, we're talking about having an event down in Mexico. A good friend of mine owns a lodge down on uh, a couple lakes down in Mexico, and we're talking about having a challenge: conventional versus fly. Now, in that venue, I'll be I'll be on the fly side of it, and going against a conventional team on seeing who can do better in a given day. And I'm telling you, it's going to be a dogfight because that fly rod, when you get the fish set up right for bass, first of all, you can throw double rigs very effectively, obviously, but we we can put some things in there in shallow water more delicately than a conventional guy can or gal can. And and there's times where um, I did an article for Bassmaster Magazine a while back in fly fishing. There are times where a fly rod, not always, certainly when we get real deep, I wouldn't say this, but there are times when they're shallow, when they're keyed in on something. The the, the hex gina for is the best example I could give you on smallmouth. You key that in, it's hard for a spinning rod guy to beat you. I mean, if you key that in, you catch everyone you cast to with a fly rod. And it's really, really cool to be able to talk to people about that that do both because it invites them to try it. Yeah. Do you find – no, that is a great point. Um, you know, on thinking on – staying on the bass subject, I mean, we have a lot of struggles just with impacts from humans and things like that, you know, ups and downs of sa- salmon populations and things like that, salmon, steelhead, trout, whatever – is bass does it have the same struggles or is it i mean it's kind of more or is it more of a durable fish that there's really no issues out there with the bass fisheries i think all fish have an element of fragility i think we all have to practice personal responsibility regardless what we're fishing for you know and you know if you see something in the water trash wise pick it up you know um don't i i I did a uh i expounded a little bit on a on a um, interview a while back about not overfighting fish, for example. I think sometimes one thing I would say is some of the bass fishermen, the fact they get that fish in so fast, like yeah. in the new major league fishing format, mm-hmm. that fish has landed way faster than a fish comes in on a fly rod. That's it's right. not even close. Yeah. And they're weighed and released immediately. So I could, I could be a voice with regards to that being very good for a fish. And I think that can be factually substantiated. Uh, versus building a fish up with lactic acid by overfighting it for five minutes. So I think we all have to share personal responsibility and be good stewards of the fishery. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in catch and release personally. Okay. I'll, I'll keep a few crappies, need them every winter ice fishing, but I'm very careful about, uh, trying to not overfight them and, uh, um, you know, making sure a lot of times, uh, uh you release them the right way and, 
Hmm. And uh, I, I just think if, if, if we all do that, it, everybody wins. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, well, that's probably a good place to leave it off. I did want to check in uh, before I let you go in the next six to 12 months. Is there anything, you know, we can expect from you or St. Croix coming up here that, uh, to keep an eye out for you? Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, keep an eye out for something that's going to launch in July. I'll leave it at that for you fly fishermen out there. We've got a, I just finished the test casting on it. Like I said, yesterday up in park falls in there. Oh man, I'm doing backflips. I'm really, really excited. I, I think, uh, um, you know, to, to give people a little bit of hint, it's going to fall into a, a, a family of rods that's been around for a long, long time, but it's going to fill a subcategory that is super exciting for us. Oh, perfect. Perfect. And do you guys have, have you jumped into the, um, I mean, do you have like two-handed spade rods and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we do. Uh, the vast majority of our fly rod sales are single-handed casting rods. Yeah. But yeah, no, we're into, we're into all those categories and, uh, you know, our sales reps out West are really, really good at that. And, you know, that, that's a, that's obviously much more of a niche, but you know, you, there's also you know, different things coming. You, you, you've got your, uh, trout spay. Mini spay is really fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I was out running out in Montana with our sales reps a couple of years ago, and it was really cool to see that, that, uh, branch of the, uh, of the industry gaining steam. And it's just, you know, I, I, kudos to the industry because there's a lot of creativity out there and a lot of brands doing a really good job and the ultimate beneficiary is the angler for sure. Yeah. All right. Good deal. Well, I guess if people want to find you, we can send them to uh, stcroyrods.com. And is that? Yeah. Stcroyrods.com is our website. You bet. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, they can communicate with our factory directly that way. And, um, I, I think one thing about, uh, the experience that people would have is again, our, we are angler centric. Uh, that's our entire focus. Uh, we, we literally treat people like family and we welcome, welcome, everybody great all right dan well i appreciate you coming on here to uh, you know share some tips and tricks and a little bit of the history on saint croix you know like i said for me I, it was funny when you're talking about the timing you know in the 80s and 90s i mean that's pretty much i grew up around a fly shop and i remember that in the 80s and 90s when uh, saint croix came in because i think i'm not sure what we were using before but we had a good period there where you know there was it seemed like 20 years where that's pretty much we were selling a lot of them and, and but uh, yeah it's awesome to hear you know from you your experience and and sharing all the tips and everything. So yeah, I'll keep in touch with you and uh, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks so much for having us on and thanks for everybody out there for listening in. Greatly appreciate it. Okay. We'll see you Dan. Take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all links we cover, just go to wetflyswing.com slash seven five. I'd love to connect you with some of our member partner companies and help you along your journey. You can go to the Wet Fly Swing Member Society where we're supporting local companies, the podcast, and you on your journey. That's wetflyswing.com slash members to find out how to get exclusive discounts and bonuses from our member partner companies. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. Looking forward to catching up with you soon. Maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.